Welcome to the social side of sport, where SPKN's Meg Wilson joins renowned sports sociologist Dr. Jay Coakley in discussions about the relationship between society and sport. Each episode provides a unique perspective as they delve into various sociocultural structures, patterns, and organizations involved in and surrounding sport. They discuss the positive impact sports have on individual people and society as a whole, economically, financially, and socially. The social side of sport provides a quick glimpse into the actions and behavior of sports teams and their players through the eyes of a sociologist. Good morning and welcome to the social side of sport with Dr. Jay Coakley. Jay, as always, it's wonderful to see you. Hey, and again, it's great to be here. So I, I like talking with you about these things. <laughs> Well, hopefully we're, we're getting some good information out there. We've done a couple shows now on gender in sport. And we, so if you haven't had a chance to view those, go ahead, pause us. We'll still be here. <laughs> go take a peek at those. But today we're going to look more specifically at the LBGTQ community. Now, before we get started, I'd like to say that we, of course, never mean to paint any group with a broad brush as generalizations can often lead to misunderstanding and miscommunication. But with that said, it's often difficult to have many of our conversations completely without generalizations. Um, I'd also like to mention that names and acronyms change over the, the years. And as we're recording this now in 2021, we always want to be as respectful and understanding as possible. While we are, while we are mentioning by name the LGBTQ community, we're technically looking at the way in which sport is organized and segregated to see if we're on the right path or if there might be a more prudent way to organize sport. So, Jay, as you know, I love to have a definition in the beginning to make sure we're all on the same page. So for those in our audience who don't know what the letters LGBTQ stand for, and I apologize if I omitted any of the letters, as I know this is an ongoing struggle for many, but maybe you could give us a, a brief description. Yeah, LGBTQ oftentimes comes with a plus after it to cover all of the different variations of identities related to sexualities. But LGBTQ stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, and queer. And queer used to be kind of the all-encompassing term that, that would cover everybody who wasn't covered by the first four letters. And, but now there's a, a plus put at the end. So because uh, sexuality is a fluid thing and gender is fluid. So people are identifying in different ways and we want to make sure that we respect their identities and respond to them in the way that they see themselves. That's very true. And I, it, it does get confusing, I think, with a lot of blending between letters. So the, the plus, I think, is a, a good way of, of doing it without, I think, having the entire alphabet. Um, it, it could get very difficult. So, And a lot of older, older people, and I'm including myself in that category, you know, we just didn't grow up with a knowledge of all the variations. In fact, we didn't grow up with a knowledge of much when it came to sexuality. So now, if you're a junior high or a high school student, you probably have some personal experiences and you know how to distinguish those letters because you've got friends who are claiming identities that are different and that fit into various categories. So the younger people are going to be much more open, I, I suspect, 
and respectful of these identity differences. You know, you bring up an interesting point, and I, I just a little side note here. I've always found it, I, I think, very difficult, especially nowadays. I remember how difficult high school was to begin with, just just with even when there was male and female, and and just figuring out what table you were going to sit at at lunch. And now these poor kids have to figure out how they identify sexually, how they identify in their gender. I would think that there is so much more pressure that's being put on kids to figure out these things. Do you think it's better to have more education on it so they are thinking about it? I mean, the acceptance part, of course, is is absolutely wonderful and it should grow. But I just wonder how much pressure we put on them as a society to make those kind of decisions now? Yeah, I think, well, the pressure also goes to the schools and and creating an inclusive environment. And, you know, I, I'm not sure how many schools have, as part of their sex education program or other parts of their curriculum, information on sexuality. I'm sure that, that some parents would object to that. So I suspect that a lot of, most students are not getting that. In, in their classes in a formal way. They may be getting it informally in the hallway, but but that's a, that's a tricky way to do things because you're getting positive and negative because some, some young people don't understand and then they start to attack and say nasty things. And then that, again, puts increasing pressure on people who are identifying in non-traditional ways, non-binary ways. So non-cisgender ways is another way to say it, C-I-S gender, which where people are not identifying with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. Okay, so if yeah. you're cisgender and you were born and classified as a male, you're now looking at yourself as something other than a male. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you, you'd be happy to know that in California, and it, we really, California sometimes seems like a different country. <laughs> but even in the Christian schools that my kids went to, they are teaching it and they are explaining it because I think with everything, and one of the reasons where we have these conversations, you and I, is so that the more conversation leads to less miscommunication in my in my book. So I'm glad that we're talking about it. I'm glad they are. And I hope that that more schools will do, do the same. Yeah, we all have to do our homework. So we, we don't keep asking people who are identifying in non-binary ways to explain themselves to us. That gets tiring for them. I'm sure. Yes. Well, to get back, okay, so trying to um, avoid generalizations, what are some of the issues in sport right now concerning the LBGTQ plus community? And how has it changed over time, maybe the last decade or two? Yeah, I think that that the big thing is is in, still there is marginalization of LGBTQ people within the context of sport. And women's sports are light years ahead of med, men's sports, but even there, there's, there's a ways to go. And the women have had some athletes who have come out and been very good at explaining who they are and what's going on in sport. And, you know, Megan Rapino is a classic example of that. Martina Navratilova was one of the one of the first, along with Billie Jean King. My favorites. She's my hero. <laughs> yeah, Martina uh, basically gave up 
over $10 million in endorsements when she came out. And my sense is that Megan Rapino is not giving up as much as Martina gave up. So, and, and Megan Rapino and Sue Beard are a couple. They're very public about their relationship and other, other lesbians and bisexual individuals within sport, within women's sports are kind of, you know, following on their coattails and they're coming out and they're announcing their relationships. And so it's becoming more of, of a common thing. The WNBA, you know, a lot of athletes starting in 2005 started coming out. And now people just know that there's a lot of, of non-binary women playing in the WNBA and a lot of lesbians. So now men's sports is a different story. And right now, there is not a man in Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NHL hockey, the NBA, Major League Soccer, pro golf, and pro tennis, who is out. Really? Yeah. Now, a lot, a lot of people... That. Uh, I, I, I'm going to check that. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll double check for our audience to make sure. We'll, make, we'll put it down below if it's different. But I, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and the confusion there is related to the fact that between 2013 and 2015, a number, and this is a small number, of male athletes came out during those years, but they came out right after they retired. They came out while they were in free agency or being drafted, and they never played a game. So now, Jason Collins did play a couple of games in the NBA in 2014, but then retired. And there was, there was a baseball player back in the 70s, Billy Burke, who everybody knew he was gay, even though he never publicly came out, I don't think. And he, he played games. And then there's a guy named, I think it's Dan Davison, who in 2015 came out and played an the 16 and 17 seasons in Major League Baseball. But since that time, and and do you know that the first out male athletes athlete in the Olympics for the United States occurred in 2018? Wow. So, and that was, God, I'm trying to think of his name right now, the, the figure skater, Adam Rippon. Really? I should, yeah, I should remember that. Now, with that said, there were 53 athletes who were out in the 2016 games in Rio. Right. But, and, and by the way, they won 20 some medals, 14 if you don't count the multiple medals won by the basketball team and maybe the volleyball team. But, but at any rate, the gay and lesbian athletes in 2016 won more medals than all of the countries who make being gay or lesbian, a crime. Illegal, right. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So it's still a big issue in men's sport. And, and, you know, the men will say, and we know that there's gay men in, in the major sport leagues. And the word is that they don't want to create a distraction. They don't want to create a media circus, which there would be, although the, the likelihood of that media circus being really big, you know, gets lower and lower every year as more people just become accustomed to living with LGBTQ people. So that's an issue. The men's sports really need a couple or a, or a few people who, who are couples maybe to come out 
and uh, they probably should be pretty high profile athletes. They should be good. The other issue that they have to cope with is how other athletes are going to respond to them on the court and or on the field. And in the past, there was a, a fear that they would be attacked or, you know, they would be the, the target of aggressive behavior on the part of other athletes. That's becoming a little bit less likely now, but it still is a fear. And then there's anxiety that coaches won't be able to understand. Managers won't. They could get traded, disrupt their lives even more than their lives are being disrupted by a media circus. So the men are closeted. And the Olympics may be one of the realms within which we can break through a little bit. Now, when you say closeted and coming out, I know that coming out of the closet, you were telling people you were gay back, you know, a couple of decades ago. But let's let's just make sure that closeted means that you're not pu- publicly announcing that you are a different sexuality than your male or female right. box check. <laughs> Right. And when you come out, you publicly announce it. And, and I, I'm sure there's different levels of coming out. There's coming out to your family. And, and then athletes have that other aspect of their public life, actors too, and, and other people that have public lives to come out. I think that it's very interesting how these stereotypes come about. Are, are women athletes worried that they're going to be hit on aggressively by, by lesbian athletes or... Is that just mainly the men that are that are homophobic? Well, no, there's homophobia in women's sports as well. And again, my sense is, and I'm not sure about the extent to which there's been change, but my sense is that there has been change and that that is pretty common in certain women's sports. If you do get approached by a lesbian athlete and you're heteronormative, you're... you're <laughs> There's a new term, heteronormative means that you are the sex that you, no, that you're the gender that you were born and that you are attracted to the opposite gender that was born that gender. Sure. Good way. <laughs> right. Description. Right. And, uh, and sports are generally heteronormative. That's part of the culture of sports. But for, for women, it operates a little bit differently. And from my conversations with women who are playing in, in certain sports, rugby is a big one where I have contacts. And generally, if somebody approaches you and you're heterosexual and they would like to go out with you, you just say no. You know, that's not, not how I identify. But we're on the same team and and everything is fine. So on most of those teams, there's no problems. Now, if you were to go back a few decades, you would find, and a good friend of mine from England did her dissertation on this, the passing patterns in field hockey by sexuality identification. So lesbians tended to pass to lesbians more than to heterosexuals and heterosexuals tended to pass to other heterosexuals more than to lesbians, and it affected the actual on-the-field dynamics that were going on. Now, this is, this is 30, 40 years ago, but I would be surprised if, that's, if that would be found in any form now. So a lot of women have become accustomed to this kind of diversity on their teams. 
Men a little bit less so, although there's high school and college teams where there's a known gay man on the team and and they're getting along just fine. And and that reminds me to say that that coming out of the closet, coming out is a process. You know, this is not something that you just do at on, on one day and then everything changes after that. It's a gradual process. And like you pointed out, they'll come out to a close friend. They'll come out to maybe some teammates. They'll come out to their parents, brothers and sisters. And, and then they'll do that before they make any kind of a public announcement. But the public announcement is big. And it's really big for male athletes because it's it's going to create this media circus and and it's going to have an impact on their endorsements and other ways of, of maintaining their careers and making money. Do you think that the passing to the same sexuality, is it, do you think that that is in the subconscious or do you think that they're, they're actually doing this on purpose back, back in that study? I wonder how much of it was known to them or if they was just a because even in soccer, if you're if you're passing to someone you practice with a lot or your buddies with, you're you'll have a tendency to go pass to them before someone else subconsciously. Right. Yeah. And that's true. And but if you're a coach, you don't want that subconscious factor leading to passes that might not be as efficient as other passes. <laughs> yeah. So that's that is an issue. And, and you know, one other example I, I wanted to provide related to men is that 800 soccer players, professional soccer players in Germany had signed a petition saying that they would support any other pro soccer player in Germany who came out. 800 signed this letter and nobody came out. I'm not very versed in in German law. Is it, is it illegal in Germany? I don't I don't think so in Germany. Okay. But being being legal is not the same as being accepted. And right. That's one of the things, and we'll get to that a little bit later with respect to Japan and and the Olympics if they happen. Absolutely. Well, before we move on to that, I've got one more question for you. I find it very interesting. So when I was growing up on the tennis circuit, I was, you know, any great athlete who was female was obviously a lesbian and, and it made them much more manly, much more strong and, and kind of gave that persona. Whereas if a, if a male athlete was gay, they're very soft, very, you know, the, the stereotypes are very opposite. And yet it, it's very interesting the way that that has been created. Yeah. And there, you know, I think that that people, many people have had enough exposure to people to know that gay men are not necessarily effeminate and lesbians are not necessarily masculine in quotes in, in terms of their behavior. So you could, I remember when, I was first dealing with this as a sociology instructor. You know, we we were in class talking about lipstick lesbians and, you know, the fact that there are lesbians who are very feminine looking. And so, you know, so those stereotypes of the masculine looking lesbian and the effeminate gay man, that's exactly what they are. They're stereotypes. Some people may fit into that stereotype in some way, Partially, 
or maybe even all the way, but that doesn't mean that you can use that stereotype to classify anybody else. So to be clear, you're not gay based on the sport you play. You're not, you're not gay by how well you play that sport or right. how you, you conduct yourself. Right. It's not, it's not decided on those terms. No, <laughs> no it has nothing to do with athletic ability <laughs> and, or motivation or any of those things. Uh, although I'll take back, I'll qualify the motivation thing because there are some gay men, boys, younger uh, males, who maybe avoid playing sport because they think they're going to get hassled oh, really? uh, and stereotyped within yeah. by the by the their fellow athletes so like there's a hockey player uh, playing for the calgary canucks i think and he said if i had been gay i would have dropped out of hockey as a 13 year old because it is such a toxic culture what what are some of the ways in which sport can harm or help the LGBTQ plus community? Sorry, I want to make sure I get all get it all out there. Yeah, well, I think that in some cases, uh, sport has hurt the LGBTQ community because of its heteronormative culture. So that has, in some cases, discouraged some people from participating. And also, it has led to the marginalization of people who are out publicly. So that's the, the downside. On the, on the upside, when someone does come out and they have fans and those fans stick with them and journalists provide good, accurate coverage of who they are and give a little background for individuals, that's part of the cultural education that sport fans then get when somebody comes out. So when you have Megan Rapino and Sue Bird showing up at an event and they're together, you know, that that is just breaking down some of the barriers that have existed in the past. And the more people see individuals who are LGBTQ and see them in different situations, for the most part, the more accepting or at least tolerant they will become. So, and media obviously plays a large part in, in this as well. Yeah. And, the, and, you know, the media circus, I use that term, you know, that's, that probably is a discouraging thing, as I, as I pointed out. But I think that a lot of the reporters now have come across LGBTQ athletes enough in the past that they respect them and they're going to cover them in a little bit less spectacular way and more accurate. And I think that anyone who uh, would come out now is going to have a lot, a lot more support than even a few years ago, if an athlete had come out and that, that would be for men and and women, but again, at the pro level, men are real cautious. And so. we've talked a little bit about the players and the athletes, but what about coaches, athletic directors, and owners? Do they feel as comfortable coming out, or is it is it a little more difficult for them? It's difficult, especially for the men. The women are. It's a little bit easier, although there's there's some catches there you know if you're a, if you're a lesbian coach and your partner your wife shows up at at events and you've just won a big championship and she wants to run out and give you a big hug and a kiss on and center court you know 
people are apprehensive of, about doing that. And they're, in some cases, apprehensive about acknowledging their partner and, and, and talking about the support that they receive from their partner. So there's still a little bit of hiding when it comes to the relationships are a little bit invisible still. And certainly uh, in men's sports, that's the case. Now, I can't think of a, of a coach at the top professional level in any of the major sports, except a woman who was hired by the San Francisco 49ers a year and a half ago. I can't think of her name right now. And she's an out lesbian. And so she is the only coach who I know of at the, like the NFL, NBA, NHL, major league baseball level. Now there's there. I don't know of any owners who are out and and Again, that's a factor that creates some anxiety among athletes because they anticipate that they may not be understood in the way that they want to be understood. Well, it's interesting that you say that now. I, you, you've said a couple times that women have a little bit easier time coming out. And you and I have talked about gender, gender equality and the way that sport has been organized and the male dominance aspect of it. Is it because of the stereotype that women who are more athletic are more manly that, that it becomes more acceptable in sport? Or is that just because they're not getting as much coverage or that people don't care as much? I mean, I doubt that's it, but. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's well, I, I think that people don't care as much in some cases. And so you can be an absolutely excellent athlete, but your presentation of self, your physical presentation has an impact on how people are going to respond to you. So someone like, and I keep using Megan Rapinoe as, a, as an example here, but someone like Megan, who is very forthcoming, and she fits into what some people might call a traditional category of attractiveness, just physical attractiveness, that she's not going to get the same kind of feedback as someone who doesn't fit that kind of image of presenting femininity, if I'm saying that right. But, you know, I think that some people would have a much more difficult time with that. So if they looked very masculine and they didn't fit what people expected in terms of presentation of femininity, they're probably going to be responded to in a different way than someone who does. Well, that makes sense. Well, how important is it for athletes who have come out to engage in, which are very far, few and far between, and I'm sure have not had an easy time of it, to engage in athlete activism? Yeah, well, the, some of the athletes who have come out after they've retired, Jason Collins is a classic example. He's been really active and he has helped a lot of male athletes who are struggling with whether they should publicly come out or not. So, yeah, so there are athletes who have retired who are now doing things to help other athletes, but current active athletes, you will find heterosexual athletes who are who are allies to gay athletes and, and LGBTQ people in general. They make an issue out of that. They're, they're very forthcoming when it comes to that, but they're not gay. 
So it's the heterosexual athletes who are probably more visible as some of the activists among the active athletes. Okay. But among retired athletes, some of the retired gay male athletes are, are very activist. So one of the criticisms heard is that those who are part of the LBGTQ community flaunt their sexuality, that it's important, for example, for a gay athlete to be open about their sexuality and to come out. Yeah, I, I think this flaunting conclusion is in the eye of the beholder rather than in, in the LGBTQ person. And, you know, if you're, if you're heterosexual and you're walking down the street holding hands, you know, nobody gives it a second thought. They don't even notice it for Pete's sake. If, if somebody is kissing someone as they're parting, nobody even thinks of that. You know, they, they used to say, we used to use the term public dif- display of affection. And, you know, heterosexuals, even if somebody said, well, they're, they're engaging in a PDA, it wasn't a big deal. And most of the time, that wasn't even labeled. But if you have a gay or a lesbian couple who are doing that, some people are likely to say, look at that. They're just putting that right in front of my face. And, you know, what they're doing is they're objecting on the basis of their sense of what is normal, natural, and and moral. And they're responding to something that if a heterosexual did it, it would be a non-issue. So the flaunting... I think that in some cases, some gay and lesbian couples may flaunt just to get, just to irritate somebody. But that would be, that would be relatively rare to be done on occasion. You know, this is not a lifestyle choice. You know, it would just be one of the things where they know somebody is so homophobic, they just want to put them on the spot. And I remember when my son and I were at my wife's wine tasting up in Aspen years ago. And I was walking around with my arm around Dennis and a couple of people made comments that we were an odd gay couple. And Dennis then, after he heard that, put his arm around me and continued to walk that way, flaunting (laughs) what, what he thought was the perception of some homophobic person. So, yeah, I think that probably happens, but that's, you know, that's a one-off and it's, it's the homophobic people who are the problem there. I think the media actually is making a gallant effort to include gay and lesbian couples, transgender af- um, actors in a lot of the shows and movies that are, that are going on. And I think that certainly the more people are exposed to seeing two women together, two men together, or that, that it probably becomes a little more normalized for us. Right. Yeah. And that is happening. And I don't think we're at the equity level there in terms of proportions, but we're certainly, we've certainly moved. We've made progress. This is the statement. We've made progress, but there's a long way to go. (laughs) Always, always, but we have to celebrate the wins too. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Well, so for a long time, the Olympic Games have struggled with the topic of LGBTQ athlete participation. And with Tokyo Olympics coming up, it reminds me of the Olympic Games where we saw activism on this topic. Some countries that participate in the Olympics continue to ban gay athletes because it's still illegal in their country. This doesn't seem to embrace the Olympic spirit as the great unifier in my mind, but what do you think? Well, you know, the, the, 
the cases that got some publicity was the Pussy Riot demonstrations in Sochi, Russia. And the Pussy Riot was a punk band and they were very out and they objected strenuously to what was going on in Russia in terms of the the informal as well as some of the formal discrimination. And I think the Cossack militia, which is not part of the police system in Russia, they they came in and swung billy club, clubs and and gave the women in, in that group a really hard time. So that but that was an explicit demonstration or protest related to the LGBTQ issue in a host country. And I think that there will be, I don't know if there'll be protests, but there may be some kind of expressions among LGBTQ athletes or among trans athletes in particular, because this will be the first Olympics if they happen in the summer of 2020, uh, 2021, where trans athletes are out. So, and participating in the- They're election. participating, yes. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's wonderful. Yeah, that will happen. And and it will have, you know, that's it's one of the only reasons I'd like to see the Olympics happen, but there's some other reasons too. But the Olympics would be occurring at the same time that so many states are trying to pass anti-trans athlete legislation or anti-trans legislation. And, you know, Texas just today, articles in the newspaper were in mid-May 2021 now, were that Texas wanted to make it a form, they wanted to redefine child abuse so that if a child started taking puberty delay, delaying drugs at, at say 13, 12 or 13, a girl taking mm-hmm. taking the drugs or, or a boy, that the parents could be arrested for child abuse, and the child would be put into foster care. And if the puberty-delaying drugs or even some kind of a minor surgery kind of in the process of making the transition was done by a physician, that physician would lose their medical license and lose the liability on their insurance covering their actions as a physician. So, you know, this is really, really reactive kinds of reactionary kinds of of things that are that are going on so in fact a lot of this legislation now is saying that that it's illegal for a physician to provide any help to a young person who's struggling with their sexual identity and who may even be classified by a psychiatrist as being sexual sexual di- dimorphic Sexual dimorphic is? So it, it is someone who is struggling, who is not cisgender. They identify with the gender to which they were not assigned at birth. And they're having a very difficult time to the point where it's creating depression and suicidal thoughts. And, and we know that the suicide rates are high. So these crazy legislators want to punish parents and physicians who are the helpers, not the pushers here. I mean, oftentimes in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, it's the young people who are saying, look, mom, dad, you know, look, doctor, I just don't see myself as a boy or as a girl. And and this can start as early as age six or seven. 
so this is not child abuse. You know, it's parents supporting their kids and it's doctors supporting young people who are having real problems. Do we know, are there any, is there any research that, that states that it is harmful to, to start taking the medication or, or to do these things? Is it, a, is it a health risk? Well, let me tell you, the NCAA since 2011 has had a rule saying that trans individuals can participate in the sport of their chosen gender if they've had a year of hormone therapy to move them in that direction. And I have not heard one report in any of the things that I read that there's a pro- that there's been a problem. I, I just wonder if it's if they're before puberty, if that makes a difference. I, I just don't know. So I was curious if you had any. If we find any, we'll we'll put it down below. But well, the puberty delaying drugs are are reversible. Oh. So you can reverse that. But if you're talking about having a surgery. That's not so reversible. Yeah. And those are much more serious. And by the way, young people understand that. And and they're more hesitant to move in the direction of surgery, even if they're doing puberty delaying treatments or if they're doing hormone treatments. So, you know, the surgery is a major step. And the surgery is not required, by the way, by the NCA or the IOC for participation in your chosen gender category. Hmm. And I haven't heard of any problems. I have heard of problems of the surgeries that are being done on intersex and other female athletes who have high amounts of testosterone and they're trying to get their testosterone down. This is normally produced testosterone and the surgeries have been botched. They've had serious problems after the surgeries. So for the women who are trying to stay competing as women, they're the ones who are being harmed by the, the rules that the IOC has. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a, a tough issue. But the other thing that I want to mention here is that from what I've read, probably 0.7% of kids in, in high school are trans or moving, you know, they're, they're engaging in, in some part of the transition process. And if you were to say, how many of them are going to try out for sports? Well, a third of them. Okay, so now we're down to like 0.2 something. And of that 0.2, you know, two people out of a thousand, you know, then how many of them are going to be so good that they're actually going to be taking positions away from... Uh, cisgender girls in in the sports. Oh, you know, maybe we'll get a couple of examples in a year, maybe in the entire United States. So, which is you know happened in Connecticut a couple of years ago. So, and and that has started this moral panic about trans females destroying women's sports. When in fact, you know, we've had trans females participating in the Olympics and and the NCAA, and I don't see the NCAA women's sports being destroyed or taken over, nor the Olympics. Yeah. Do you have any comment about Caitlyn Jenner mentioning that she does not think that transgender athletes should participate? Yeah, she's... uh, and she's making a joke of running for governor in California in a, a just 
she's not trying to make a joke, but it's it's coming off that way because she's so ill-prepared for this. And I don't think she has taken a look at the facts and she's just not an informed person when it comes to that particular issue. And she's responding to what a lot of the other mostly Republican legislators are responding to. And it's a form of moral panic about something they know nothing about. They've never come across it in real life, but they've painted this picture for themselves where, you know, somehow they they predict an invasion of trans females into sports. And we've said it before, this is not an easy process. This is this is def- so difficult, both physically and mentally, that no one would do this to get a trophy. Right. Um, and so our, our heart goes out to everyone who has had to go through the surgery or even the, the treatments. It's right. a difficult road. And the legislation, by the way, is not just harming somebody who wants to be an athlete, on, uh, you know, who, who might be an athlete on a women's team. This is harming the person who would never try out for a sport team. It just makes them, it casts them in a more abnormal, unnatural light. And, and then if you want somebody to get depressed and go undercover and have suicidal thoughts, that's what this legislation is doing to the vast majority of young people who are, who are even considering a transition process. It's sad. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, Jay, as always, I so enjoy our conversations and learn so much. And thank you so much. This conversation, I've really enjoyed all of our conversations. Well, you're welcome. And, and I also want to say uh, some, something to our our viewers and listeners, and that is that if they have comments about some of the things that I've said or would like to correct me, for example, I'm open. Uh, you can provide them with my email and, and they can- We'll have it. them on the show and we can have even more uh, conversations because that's, okay. that's the best way that we clear up miscommunication, right? Sounds good. Good. Okay. Uh, we also want to mention that if you are looking for resources and you're not a part of the LBGTQ community and want to understand it more, there are a couple of URLs. We'll put them below, but athletealley.org and outsports.com are two that we found. If we find others, we'll be sure to put them down there as well as ones that, that might help the LGBTQ community in, in uh, their efforts. Right. And there's a couple of others and we'll list those two. Great. Okay. All right. Thank you. Hey, take care, Megan. Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.